Well, good evening, everybody. Good to see everyone. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of James, chapter 4? As we continue our study in the book of James, remember the main theme that James is presenting is Christian maturity. Christian maturity. And as we have seen, he desperately wants his readers to grow out of carnality into spiritual maturity. And the way he's been doing this is he's been holding up what a mature Christian looks like so they can evaluate where they are, all right? And, uh, you know, basically he wants them to grow in their relationship with the Lord. So he's saying, look, here's what a mature Christian looks like. And he's been going through different things that are the characteristics of somebody who is mature in the Lord. We're always going to be growing. We never arrive anywhere. It's not like we ever come to a place where we stop growing this side of glory, but you know, at one point you do enter into more of a maturity than you did when you first got saved. And so as we um, have been looking at what James has been kind of uh, pointing out as traits of a mature Christian, we saw, first of all, uh, he said a mature Christian embraces trials. He or she embraces them with joy because they produce within us the character of Christ. So a mature Christian embraces trials, but is always on guard against temptation. Uh, that was chapter one. A mature Christian demonstrates a heart of love and concern for the poor and disadvantaged and reaches out to help them. Well, that's the heart of God. He's always got a soft spot in his heart for the poor, for the orphan, the stranger, the widow, and so on. That was chapter 2. Thirdly, a mature Christian has power over their tongue. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 12, as we look at that. Number four, a mature Christian walks in wisdom. Well, we said last week that that means they know what God has said in his word, and they apply it consistently in their daily life or their walk. Okay, that was chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. And now in chapter 4, which we started last week, but I want to back up a little bit, all right? But uh, in chapter 4, he presents another characteristic of a mature Christian. A mature Christian is not a friend of the world. Is not a friend of the world. Verse 4, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, as we said last week, when James calls his readers adulterers and adulteresses, he isn't talking about physical adultery, you know, unfaithfulness to one's spouse. He's talking about spiritual adultery, which is unfaithfulness to God. Now, look, when a person receives Jesus as Lord and Savior, at that moment, the Bible says they are now betrothed to him. Paul makes this very clear in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, when he said, For I am jealous for you with a, with a godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband. And, and that's just another way of saying, when I led you to Christ, uh, you were betrothed to one husband, uh, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But uh, what Paul is doing is he's drawing from a Jewish wedding. Uh, which began with the betrothal. Now, according to a Jewish custom, the betrothal was a lot more than what we think of an engagement period in our culture. It was more than that. It involved, the uh, Hebrew marriage involved two stages, the kedushin, the betrothal, and uh, then the chuppah, which was the actual marriage ceremony. And uh, the marriage was almost always arranged by the parents uh, of the uh, bride and groom, uh, often without consulting them, all right, come home one day, find out you're married, all right? Uh, but really often it started when the kids were babies. If two families knew each other and one had a boy, one had a girl, they often said, look, you know, when they get older, let's marry them together so we can, you know, be literally a family together uh, as good friends. And uh, so uh, as soon as they drew up this contract, pledging each other's child to the other, you know, boy to girl and so on, uh, at that point, they were considered legally married, even though the marriage ceremony, the chuppah, uh, and consummation often didn't occur until much later, sometimes even a year later. But as Christians, we have entered into a binding contract or a covenant with our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And uh, someday he is going to come back for his bride, the church, at the rapture. And we will enter into the second phase of the marriage ceremony uh, and become you know, at that point, fully and completely his wife, with all that means. Even though, guys, right now we are legally married to him. Remember, uh, in a Jewish 
uh, marriage. When a, two people were betrothed, uh, if they at one point decided they didn't want to be married, they would have to be divorced. Or if one of them died during this Kedushan period, this betrothal period, uh, the other would be considered a widow or a widower. Because it was still, it looked upon as a legal contract, they were legally married, although the marriage was not yet consummated. So when we gave our heart to Christ, when we became saved, we entered into this marriage covenant with the Lord, basically. We became betrothed to Him. We are legally married to Him in the eyes of God. And that means if any one of us, any Christian, falls in love with the world or anything in the world, uh, begins to carry on a love affair, we'll say, with uh, anything of this world, uh, well, then in the eyes of God, that's committing spiritual adultery. Now listen, that doesn't mean that we can't love anyone in this world. Obviously, as uh, husbands and wives on this earth, we love each other, and God expects us to love each other. But no love must be greater than our love for Him. His love has to supersede all love, you know, because that's He's supreme. Uh, he has the preeminence in our lives. He's our King and our Bridegroom. Now, when James says in verse 4 that friendship with the world is enmity with God, the word for world that he uses is the Greek word cosmos. And it doesn't mean the planet Earth. It means the world system, which is controlled by Satan. One pastor put it this way, said, and I quote, cosmos, world, does not refer to the physical Earth or universe, but rather to the spiritual reality of the man-centered Satan-directed system of this present age, which is hostile to God and God's people. It refers to the self-centered, godless value system and mores of fallen mankind. The goal of the world is self-glory, self-fulfillment, self-indulgence, self-satisfaction, and every other form of self-serving, all of which amounts to hostility toward God, end quote. This is exactly the same word that John used in his first epistle, chapter 2. When John says, do not love the world, cosmos, the world system, or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of this world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Now listen to me, okay? When James talks about those who want to be friends with this fallen world system, a system that is controlled by Satan for the purpose of deceiving and destroying the people on this planet, I do not believe he has backslidden or carnal Christians in mind. The Greek he uses is pretty strong and leaves no room for ambiguity. When James says, whoever therefore wants, wants to be a friend of the world, makes himself an enemy of God. The Greek word for wants expresses more than just wanting a wish to be fulfilled. It's a much stronger word, a stronger idea uh, that, that means choosing one thing over another. Choosing one thing over another. Or in other words, what James is referring to is basically a person who is choosing Satan and his kingdom, which is the world, over or instead of God and his kingdom. Whether or not, listen, whether or not they themselves realize what they're doing. And I say that because there are churchgoers and professing Christians who think that they can love and serve God and the world, and that's not a problem. Even though Jesus himself said in Matthew 6, 24, that's impossible. That's impossible, okay? But you have folks who think they can love and carry on a relationship with both the world and God, and that God is fine with that. But on that point, let me just say this, they are sadly mistaken and greatly deceived. Just like a a husband, will say, would be deceived if he thinks his wife won't mind that he has a mistress on the side. Or a wife would be deceived if she thinks that her husband won't mind if she has a lover on the side that she constantly sees and commits adultery with. See, guys, this is the very idea James is denouncing right here. Remember now, he's talking to the vast majority of the people he's writing to. They're saved, but carnal. And he wants to encourage them to go forward, to go on with Christ, to grow up. But he recognizes that some of these folks are carnal, not because they're immature Christians, but because they themselves have never accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. I mean, we see this 
in the church today. Jesus talked about it in the Gospels. Uh, the writers of the epistles talked about, you know, uh, the false among the real, the, the, the goats among the sheep, the tares among the wheat, all the way through the Gospels, all the way through the New Testament. We are told that, that, that Satan has come and sown within the body of Christ those who are tares, those who are false Christians. Some of them don't even know they're false Christians. Some of them know they're playing a game for whatever reason. Maybe in some big churches they network with people. They come across as a Christian because they have a business. They want to you know, maybe uh, connect with people to maybe sell their product or whatever they, they have, insurance or Amway, whatever they do. Okay, uh, But the idea is there's a lot of folks in the church who are not Christians, who think they are. And at different points in James' epistle, he kind of directs his comments to them. Now, if you're not careful, if you don't realize that, and you begin to think that he's addressing Christians and all these things he is saying, well, you're going to get the idea that for some Christians, they're, they've lost their salvation by the things James says. But listen to me. I believe that at this point, when he talks about people being friends with the world and enemies of God, he is not talking about true Christians. He is talking about these very kinds of folks who go to church uh, and think that they can love God and love the world, you know? But they're not really loving God in the world. As Jesus said, you will only be able to serve one over the other. So either God or the world, you can't serve God and the world. But the James is, a, is denouncing in verse 4 this idea that, you know, a person can be married to Christ and carry on an affair with the world. And listen to how it's put in the Amplified Bible. James 4, verse 4. You are like unfaithful wives, having illicit love affairs with the world and breaking your marriage vow to God. Do you not know that being the world's friend is being God's enemy? So whoever chooses to be a friend of the world takes his stand as an enemy of God. Now that is pretty strong language, which I believe James is directing at those who have maybe, you know, walked the aisle of the crusade or come forward at church when the altar call was given, prayed a prayer, filled out a card, and made a so-called commitment to Jesus Christ. In other words, a vow of marriage to him. But it wasn't real. It wasn't real. How do we know it wasn't real? By the fruit, or lack thereof, that comes out of their life as time goes on. Jesus said you'll know them by their fruit. So that when James says that these folks have now broken their marriage vow to God, well, I don't believe he is saying that they were ever really saved, but now have lost their salvation. You can go back and read chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, that true believers have works, and these folks, their works are evil because they love and embrace the world system, which Satan is in control of. So I, I don't believe he's really talking when he talks about, well, you've broken your marriage vows. Well, I don't, I don't believe he believes those vows were actually ever real, but they professed to make a commitment to Christ, all right? So I don't think he's talking to true Christians here who have lost their salvation. I think he's talking about or talking to these counterfeit Christians. Further, I don't believe he's, you know, saying that uh, these folks he's addressing were backslidden Christians. Uh, I don't believe that either. I believe that James, by calling them enemies of God, is saying that they have shown their true character and proven that they are really unbelievers by their continued love for and commitment to this world system. One commentator put it this way, said, and I quote, a true believer could never be called an enemy of God. To be God's enemy is to remain in spiritual darkness, daily grow more fit for eternal death, and have the sovereign king of the universe as your foe. Anyone who does not belong to God belongs to the world, and everyone who belongs to the world does not and cannot belong to God. Friends of the world are controlled by the spirit of the world and have no part with the spirit of God. On the other hand, Paul makes clear in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 12 that believers have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, end quote. Now, guys, once James said that those who love the world don't really belong to God, listen to me, he then pivots because he, he wants to address believers encouraging them to become mature. But again, sprinkled throughout the epistle, at some points he will direct comments towards these phonies, 
who think they're saved, who are playing a game, okay? Uh, they hear the word, but they don't do the word. Don't be hearers of the word uh, and not doers of the word, deceiving yourself, chapter 1, right? So after he says, look, folks, those of you who are loving the world, living in the world and enjoying the world, look, you're an enemy of God because you're a friend of the world. After having said that, he now pivots to the believers, the true believers, and says, verse 5, or do you, or do you, talking to believers, think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. Look, here's what James knows. Here's what he's saying. He knows that true believers can be carnal at times and enamored uh, with and drawn to the world at times. We're not saying that a true believer can't be carnal, that a true believer can't be enamored with the world can't, you know, kind of flirt with the world, you know, have a crush on the world. I'm not talking about a full-blown love affair. That would be an unbeliever, okay? But there are Christians who, you know, for whatever reason, are not totally in their hearts committed to Jesus, sold off for him, okay? So he knows that true believers can be carnal and uh, at times enamored with the world. And that's why he says in verse 5 that as true believers, the Spirit of God dwells in us and yearns jealously for us to be faithful and committed to our Savior and Bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ, and not to have a crush on the world. Look, when James talks about how the Holy Spirit dwells in us and yearns jealously, uh, he is telling us that Jesus, who lives in us through his indwelling Holy Spirit, jealously wants, listen to me, jealously wants us all to himself. Is that such a wrong thing? For a husband to say to his wife, I don't want you going out dating anymore or flirting with guys or, or having an affair with other I want you all to myself. Shouldn't every man or woman expect that under the context of marriage and the commitment that they've entered into in marriage, isn't it just natural to think that we expect fidelity and faithfulness from our spouse? Of course, that's the norm, right? And Jesus is saying the same thing here through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in us. John 15, verse 18, I believe, talks about, Jesus, I will come to you. I will send you the Holy Spirit, but as I do, the Spirit will live in you, and I will come to you. All right? So Jesus lives in us through his indwelling Holy Spirit, and he's jealous over us. He's, he's jealous over us. He wants us all to himself. He doesn't want to have to compete with any other love interests or rivals. You see, I believe James is making an appeal to true Christians uh, he is writing to by telling them this. He's basically saying, look, you're not an enemy of God any longer, like those who are still a part of the world system. You have been betrothed to Christ. You need to make a clean break from the world. Christian maturity doesn't love the world or live for the world or try to serve the Lord and the world. True Christian maturity is devoted to Christ and his kingdom. Therefore, don't be carnal or half-hearted in your commitment to Jesus. Be totally in love with and committed to him as your bridegroom. And that's just normal that the Lord would want us to be totally in love with him. You know, in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul expressed much the same thoughts as James does in chapter 4. Turn to 1 Corinthians 2. You will notice that Paul the Apostle is talking about believers and the world, which in some of your translations he calls them the natural man. They're unsaved. Let me read to you a few verses out of 1 Corinthians 2, starting with verse 12. I'll read it to you out of the NLT. It very much goes along with what James has been saying in this chapter. But uh, verse 12, And we have received God's Spirit, not the world's Spirit, so we can know the wonderful things God has freely given us. When we tell you these things, we do not use words that come from human wisdom. Remember, James is talking about wisdom that comes from the devil. Wisdom of this world is the idea. Well, Paul's talking about the same thing here. And remember we said last week that wisdom is the application of knowledge. Well, what knowledge? Well, that's a good question. As we said last time, there are two knowledge streams that have filled this world. One comes from God. It's his word. The other comes from the devil. These two knowledge streams are the two sources of wisdom that we see in the world today. Wisdom that comes from God, which is, of course, knowing God's word and applying it into our lives consistently. That's how we walk in wisdom. 
And of course, the world, though, they have wisdom, but it's earthly, sensual, and demonic, as James said, as we looked at last week. Why? Because it comes from the God of this world. It's his thoughts. It's his ideologies. It's his things, okay? And, uh, you know, in Second um, Corinthians uh, 10, classic, you don't have to turn there, but classic passage on spiritual warfare, Paul basically says that we are fighting, you know, <laughs> We are fighting against every high and lofty thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. If you study the passage, he's talking about ideologies. Worldly, demonic ideologies that people then base their entire lives on. And they walk in wisdom according to what the devil has pumped into their brain. They don't realize it's a demonic wisdom. It's taking them farther away from God. It's not bringing them closer to God like the wisdom that is from above which every Christian who knows God's word and applies that word into their lives consistently, they walk in wisdom, but it's a good wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Well, that means also then that we love truth, that we love his word, and so on. All right? But Paul is talking about basically the same thing. He's saying, look, there's two different wisdoms out there according to two different spirits. The Holy Spirit gives us God's wisdom, his word, and the spirit of this age. Uh, is out there, you know, the devil working in people and filling their minds with all kinds of, of demonic uh, ideologies and so on. But he goes on to say, verse 13, when we tell you these things, we do not use words that come from human wisdom. Instead, we speak words given to us by the Spirit, using the Spirit's words to explain spiritual truths. But people who aren't spiritual, in other words, who aren't saved, the people who are of this world, okay, can't receive these truths from God's Spirit. It all sounds foolish to them, and they can't understand it, for only those who are spiritual, or in other words, born of the Spirit, can understand what the Spirit means. So he's talking about, okay, Christians and unbelievers. Now, after having said that, he talks about, he talks about the, the spiritual man, the natural man, believers, unbelievers. But from that point in chapter 2, he moves into chapter 3, where he adds a third category. The carnal man, okay? Uh, Sukaikos, the soulish, uh, the carnal individual. Now, this is a person who is saved, but still walking according to the desires of the flesh more than the desires of the Holy Spirit. Let me just read to you a part of this. And I bring this up because I want you to understand that uh, even true Christians can be carnal. And James is addressing this. But in 1 Corinthians 3, starting with verse 1, Dear brothers and sisters, when I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as I would to spiritual people. I had to talk as though you belonged to this world or as though you were infants in the Christian life. I had to feed you with milk, not with solid food, because you weren't ready for anything stronger. And you still aren't ready, for you are still controlled by your sinful nature. You are jealous of one another and quarrel with each other. Doesn't that prove you are controlled by your sinful nature? Aren't you living like people of the world? See, James does want to address true Christians who are carnal in the hopes that they will want to grow up. But every once in a while, he has to direct his thoughts and his comments to those that he knows are probably not saved. But uh, author Warren Worsby said, and I quote, Living for the flesh means grieving the Holy Spirit of God who lives in us. Just as the world is the enemy of God the Father, so the flesh is the enemy of God the Holy Spirit. There is a holy, loving jealousy that a husband and wife have over each other, and rightly so. The Spirit within jealously guards our relationship to God, and the Spirit is grieved when we sin against God's love. End quote. You say, well, that's great. That's great. I, I do love the Lord, and I want to live for Him. I, I don't want to give in to my flesh, but I'm weak. <laughs> and I fail constantly at this. Is there any hope for me? Well, James 4, verse 6. But he gives even more what? Grace. He gives us even more grace to stand against such evil desires. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but favors the humble. Guys, we've talked about this, but bear with me. The idea that James is expressing here is that God doesn't want us to try harder 
to live for him. Uh, that's a proud approach to our Christianity, that I can have victory over my flesh in my own strength. What does that say? But I really don't need God, all right? I can do it, okay? Uh, you ever I heard a pastor say one time when his son was just a little guy, you know, maybe two years old, and uh, he wanted to learn how to tie his shoes. And every time the pastor tried to help his son, because he didn't really know what he was doing, he would just, I'll do it, I'll do it, you know, that kind of thing. So he just stood back, and he tried and tried and tried. He got so frustrated, he kicked his shoe across the room. You know, that's what a lot of us do with, in our relationship with God. God, the Holy Spirit comes alongside of us. He's going to empower us to do the work. I can do it, I can do it, I can do it, Lord. You know, watch me, I can do it. And we get so frustrated, we want to give up ministry. And God is saying, look, that is a proud approach to the Christian life. You cannot have victory in your own strength, no matter how hard you try. In fact, James says, God opposes the proud. You know what that means in the Greek? It means sets himself in battle array against him. Now, of course, first and foremost, uh, it's talking about the unsaved proud. God is always setting himself against the proud of this world. But if you look at the context here, James is including Christians who are proud by trying to live for the Lord in their own strength. That you actually set yourself against God. Because God is the only way we are ever going to be able to grow and do all that God wants us to do is if we rely on his strength and power. No other way around it. You know, but we want to we want to show God we can do it. And uh, God waits for us to get exhausted. I remember Pastor Chuck telling the story about how he had all these great ideas and he was going to really turn the world upside down for his Lord and just got out of Bible college and boy started in ministry and he had all kinds of ideas and all kinds of things he was going to do to build the kingdom and God, he said God let me labor and labor and labor 17 years until I was so totally exhausted and frustrated I was thinking about leaving the ministry altogether and he went to a conference through his denomination where they unveiled the new spring programs to build the church and Chuck said I just sat there as they were outlining these programs, he said, I just couldn't do another program. I was just so tired of programs. They had never worked. They had never built a church. And uh, I was ready to quit. And I just, I just went back to my hotel room. And I got down on my knees and I prayed. He said, he said Lord, I, I just can't go into the contest. I, I can't do another program, Lord. I just, I just don't know what to do. He said the Lord spoke to him very clearly, gave him two scriptures, one out of Acts chapter 2, and the Lord added to the church daily those being saved, and out of Zechariah, uh, I believe it's 6 verse 4, it's not by power nor by might, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. That's how we live for God. That's how we do the work of God. It isn't our strength or our resourcefulness or our creativity. It's the Holy Spirit's power. James is essentially saying that very thing here, that um, what God is waiting for us is for us to abandon self-effort and humble ourselves before him so he can fill us with his spirit and give us grace, which is his strength and power to live for him as mature believers in Christ. In fact, when James says that God gives us more grace, he is saying that God will provide all the strength and power we need to defeat whatever enemy we face in the Christian life. Uh, an abundance of grace, listen, more grace than we need, which goes along with what Paul said in Romans 5, verse 20, where sin abounds, grace what? Abounds much more. Don't you love it that God didn't say you're barely conquerors through him who loves you? He said, you're more than conquerors through him who loves you. God doesn't just, you know, like David, my cup, what? It barely hit, comes to the rim. My cup overflows. This is our God. And I believe it overflows because he wants some of it to spill on somebody close to you. All right. He wants us to be a channel through which the spirit can flow. He wants the Spirit to overflow our lives as we keep drawing close to Him and as the Spirit overflows us 
Well, it begins to touch others around us. And this is how the work of God is done, how hearts are touched, how lives are changed, how the church is built. It's not me. It's not you. It's the Holy Spirit, right? Spurgeon said, and I quote, Do you suffer from spiritual poverty? It's your own fault, for he giveth more grace. If you have not got it, it's not because it's not to be had, but because you have not gone for it, end quote. And it kind of reminds me of what James says in chapter, or in verse 2. He said, you don't have because you don't what? Ask. You don't have because you don't ask. Part of it is because a lot of churches today are not teaching about the baptism with the Holy Spirit. So naturally, people will not ask God for something that they're not being taught exists or being taught it ended in the first century. See, we don't need God's power today, do we? We have our degrees. We have our programs. We have all of our big shots who have studied and got their PhDs and all these other letters after their names. They're the ones that will teach us how to build the church. No. That's where the church's Tozer said, if, if the Holy Spirit was removed from the work of the early church, 90% of what they were doing would have come to a stop. If the work of the Holy Spirit was taken away from the modern church, about 10% of what is being done would come to a stop. We're not relying on the power. We're not relying on God's grace. It's the bottom line. Now look, so James says you don't have because you don't ask. But he also says something that's very important, and we'll actually study this more in detail next time. Verse 10, James also says humility is the key to victory humility is the key to victory yes god's grace that's the power but how do we receive the power well humility 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 toward god is simply the quality listen that understands i am nothing without him i can do nothing without him which causes me to lean and depend on him for everything that's humility. Right? I realized, Lord, if you don't do it, it's not getting done. I, I can't perform anything. I can't. The, the idea is that, look, in the energy of our own strength, we can't do anything for God. Not the smallest thing. God wants us to depend on his grace. That's why he gives us all the grace we need in any situation. He gives more grace, as much as we need. But the devil, see, guys, he wants us to depend on ourselves. See? God knows that we must depend on him. When I'm weak, what did Paul say? When I'm weak, I am strong. I'm not depending on my own strength. If, if I'm weak, if I realize, look, there's no way I can do this or achieve that or whatever, then I'm looking to God completely and God will bless. But the devil doesn't want that. He wants to feed our pride because he knows he can always get us, well, most of the time, through our pride kind of building our thoughts of ourselves up and he knows that once we start depending on ourselves he's got us right where he wants us you know god's responsibility is to give us the power that's his we can't manufacture that our responsibility is to keep ourselves in a place of humility keep ourselves in the place of humility and to submit our lives completely to everything god has said verse 7 therefore james says submit to god Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Becoming mature Christians means we must take seriously and fight faithfully against the three powerful enemies that we face on a daily basis. You know, the devil, the world, and the flesh. And really, he's been talking all the way through here and will continue. If he's talking about maturity, maturity and victory are go hand in hand. And here's the thing. If you're going to have victory, well, you've got to come against the enemies that are always, you've got to fight these enemies. You can't sidestep them. You can't pretend they're not there. You can't make an alliance with them. A lot of people make a treaty with their flesh. Well, I'm not perfect. Okay, as if that's news to the rest of us. Well, I'm not perfect. I mean, you know, since I became a Christian, God's given me victory. Oh, I got, I've had victory over a lot of areas of my, my flesh. All right, once in a while I still watch a little pornography or I still, you know, smoke or something else. I mean, you know, nobody's perfect. The problem is that in whatever area of the flesh you make a treaty with, that will be the beachhead from which the devil will then begin to retake territory that you conquered in the spirit for the Lord. 
That's why in the Old Testament, God said about the Amalekites. And the Amalekites, as we saw when we studied the uh, book of Exodus, were a type of the flesh. And what, did, what was the command God gave to his people with regard to the Amalekites? You are to utterly wipe them out. So much so that when King Saul did not wipe out the Amalekites completely, he left some of them alive, God said, enough is enough with you, Saul. You don't listen to me. You don't fully obey me. I'm removing the kingdom from you. And how did Saul die? You remember? At the hands of what? An Amalekite. The spiritual lesson is if you don't, by the Spirit, every day fight against the flesh and conquer all of it, the flesh will rise up and kill you spiritually. And that, that's just the way it is. And so that's why it says God gives us more grace, okay? Because we need more and more grace to fight these battles to have greater and greater victory, all right? But our responsibility is to keep ourselves humble. And uh, mature Christians uh, need to understand that, well, they do understand. Mature Christians understand this principle, that they uh, face these enemies and they want to fight against these in the power of the Spirit because they realize that's how they become mature and that's how they become a witness for others who they want to see brought to Christ. But um, we can't defeat these enemies in our own strength. We must, as Paul the Apostle said in Galatians chapter 2, let Jesus live his life through us, Jesus the victorious one. Here's the thing. Jesus Christ has already won the battle, right? He's vanquished principalities and powers. He has triumphed over them, Paul said. He made an open spectacle of them on the cross, He's the victorious one. He has bound the strong man in one of the parables he gave. He bound the strong man. Hang on to that. We'll come back to it in a second. The victory is already Christ. So think about it. If Jesus Christ has already won the victory and Jesus lives in me, what I need to do is get out of the way and by faith let Jesus live his life through me. Right? Turn to Galatians 2. Galatians 2. Starting with verse, well, not starting, starting and ending with verse 20. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, in other words, in this physical body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus Christ lives in every Christian through the indwelling presence of his Holy Spirit, John 14 verses 15 to 18. And guys, this means the Christian life is a supernatural life. Paul said, and here's what the Greek is saying, I have been permanently, once and for all, crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I what? Live. Nevertheless, I live. It's a supernatural existence. Christianity isn't rehabilitation or reformation. It isn't turning over a new leaf and trying to reinvent yourself. It is death of the old life and resurrection of a new life. Guys, in other words, it is a miracle. It's something that only God can do. To be born of the Spirit, to be saved, is a total miracle of God. Because only God can raise the what? The dead. Only God can raise the dead. The Christian life is a supernatural life with supernatural power, God's grace, available to live it, but only as we live it by faith. You see, faith releases the power of God into our lives to be saved and to be victorious over sin and self. But where faith will release God's power into our lives for victory, listen, carnality and pride will rob us of that power and bring defeat. That's why Satan's always trying to get us to focus on ourselves, because he knows that as we then the, our pride kicks in, it will just lead to defeat. James says that, you know, the uh, best defense against this is a good strong offense. Verse 7 again, Therefore submit to God. The Greek means place yourself fully under His authority. Okay? Surrender. Surrender. The mark of carnality is always, I can do it, I can do it, God, let me do it. The mark of carnality is trying to keep the steering wheel of your life in your control instead of moving over and let the Holy Spirit take over. As I've said it before, let me say it again. In a nutshell, the whole Christian life can be summed up in this one idea. 
learning to let go and surrender fully to God. That takes a lifetime for many of us. But that is the secret of the Christian life. The sooner you understand that and the more you do it, the more victory and maturity you will enjoy. Letting God take over. The best defense is a good, strong offense. Therefore, first and foremost, submit your life fully to God. Place yourself totally under his authority. It's not, well, I like this stuff you said, Lord, but I don't care for this stuff. Okay? It's not a spiritual smorgasbord where you can, you know, the spiritual sizzler where you can just pick and choose whatever you like out of the word. You got to submit to all of it. Man does not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. All right? Therefore, submit to God. And then resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, again, indulge me, because I know we've talked about this, all right? Notice James doesn't say, rebuke the devil, and he will flee from you. He says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And I bring this up because many Christians have been taught to rebuke the devil and to bind him in the name of Jesus. You hear, you hear some of these Christians praying this all the time. I bind you, Satan, in the name of Jesus. Now, I know what they're saying. I know what they've been taught. But it's an unbiblical concept to think that we can bind Satan with our words, that he can't do his dirty work. Because again, we don't bind anybody. It's the Lord Jesus Christ that has bound the enemy and has opened the way for the gospel to go throughout the entire world to take back from the devil those he has taken captive. But listen, there's a lot of people who think that it's all about them binding Satan with their words. And if that's your concept of fighting spiritual warfare, that it's all about speaking to the devil saying, I bind you, well, uh, you're, you're going to be very frustrated and defeated in your Christian experience. Now, of course, we can pray that God would protect us or deliver us from the devil's oppression or persecution. That's legitimate. Also, we can pray that God would use us to spread the gospel and expand his kingdom, God's kingdom on earth, through our ministries, which will take territory away from the devil and lessen his area of influence. That's also legitimate. But if you think you can bind Satan as if you're tying him up with your words to make him powerless to carry out his deeds, well, you're very much mistaken. Turn to 2 Corinthians 12. Now, we have talked about this before. I'm just going to touch on it once again briefly. A lot of things are being done in the church, a lot of um, teachings, a lot of uh, what people are doing that have no scriptural foundation. Or, in other words, sometimes go against what the Bible is actually saying. But they've always been taught this. They've gone to a church where people have done these things, rebuking the devil and doing these other things and whatever. And so they learn through watching other Christians. And so one generation of Christian keeps passing to the next generation these faulty concepts, these unbiblical practices. Look, if it was legitimate to bind the devil, uh, if he came attacking, I'd be the first one to tell you, let's do it. Okay? But listen to what happened to Paul, right? 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. Paul's talking about how many revelations God gave him. And so God humbled Paul. To keep him humble, he gave him what Paul calls a messenger of Satan. Let me read verse 7. He said, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. Lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will, will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and in reproaches and needs and persecution and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, if this doctrine of binding Satan was valid, then why didn't Paul use it here in his life? I mean, you know, why didn't he say, you know, the... The devil came against me like a thorn in the flesh. And man, I bound him. Man, I told him, Satan, I bind you. And boy, he left me alone. Couldn't do anything. I tied him right up with those words. And why didn't Paul use that? When he was attacked by the devil, it was legitimate. Listen, it's because Satan can't do anything to us unless, listen to me, God allows it. Read the book of Job, chapter 1. Satan is serving the purposes of God in our lives to teach us, and God is using the devil, I should say, to teach us how to be good soldiers of Jesus Christ, how to persevere under pressure, and to conform us into the image of our Savior. So some would say at this point, well, so what you're saying is I shouldn't do anything when Satan attacks me. I should just submit to it. No, I'm not saying that either. 
I'm not saying that either. In fact, I'm saying the very thing James said uh, in James 4 and Peter said in 1 Peter 5. Remember, starting with verse 8, Peter said, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Verse 9, what? Resist him. Same thing James says. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brothers or brotherhood around or in the world. Look, we're commanded to resist the devil by being steadfast in the faith. We are not ever commanded to bind the devil. And we resist the devil by putting on the whole armor of God every day and walking closely with the Lord. Ephesians 6 verse 11. But again, resist the devil and he will flee from you. What exactly does that mean? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Well, uh, one pastor who I know uh, said this and I quote. He said, how many of you have ever had a hard time getting to Bible study? But somehow you got there. I commend you because had you succumbed to those pressures, you would have faced them again and again. You see, because Satan isn't omniscient, because he can't read your mind or see into your heart, he's dependent solely upon trial and error to see what works in your life. Therefore, if he sees that a headache will keep you from worship and Bible study, guess what will happen? You will have headaches perpetually. If he sees that your kids acting up causes you to pull back, stay home, and not be where you should be, well, he'll have found a way or the key to slowing down your walk. I'm convinced that many people experience unnecessary hell in their homes or trials in their lives because they don't understand this verse. They don't realize that if they resist the devil, he will indeed flee, end quote. We give in to the devil. We, we don't even realize, though, don't we? Often. You know, the devil is trying to push the buttons. The devil is, you know... How many couples on their way to church got into a fight? Turned the car around and went home. Oh, the devil says, oh, that worked pretty good. <laughs> so Sunday morning, he's pushing all them buttons, trying to get you fighting with each other so you stay home from church. I mean, you know, the devil is not, I mean, he's predictable, but he's only got a few plays in his playbook, but it works really well, so he sticks with these things, okay? But of course, resisting the devil, guys, is really only half of God's battle strategies for victory. We must also draw near to God. Verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now guys, this is a promise from the Holy Spirit who gave us the scriptures. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. It's a promise from the Holy Spirit who gave us the scriptures. But listen to me. Promises in the Bible don't automatically become a reality in our lives as believers. They have to be received and applied into our lives by faith. Now, I'd like to pick it up there next week uh, and explore that idea more fully as we move farther into chapter 4 and probably into chapter 5. But um, I want to leave you with an exhortation from the same pastor I just quoted a minute ago because I think he had some very practical things to say about these last couple of verses. And I'll just end with this, okay? And we'll pick it up next week uh, in verse 8. But he said, you know, again, James said, if you draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. The pastor says, people say to me, I've tried, but I can't seem to connect with God. I don't believe you, I lovingly answer. Because God's word says he will always draw near to us if we draw near to him. And I have found this promise to be true, for without fail, every time I have been serious about seeking God, he has made himself known to me through a scripture or in my heart, or through the body of Christ. Sometimes we need to lovingly say to those who whine about feeling far from God, even though they claim they have tried to draw near to God, you're deceiving yourself, we need to say to them lovingly. Or you're trying to deceive me, because God's word says that if you take the time and expend the energy to draw near to him, listen, he will draw near to you, end quote. And that's just promise of God, you know. There are many times in the Old Testament God says, here's what I'm promising you. Now, test me. Test me to see if I'm faithful. Years ago, there was a uh, very godly lady. It's a true story. Very godly woman. 
and uh, very much a woman of the word. And uh, she was in her 80s, and I think, when she finally passed away. And when her children were going through her possessions, they found her Bible, old, worn-out Bible. And as they leafed through it, they found uh, the letters TP by many of the verses. They couldn't figure out what TP meant. They thought about it, thought it, couldn't figure out what those two letters meant. So finally, they talked to one of her friends that had been good friends, prayer partners, and studied the Bible together. They, they showed her uh, this lady's Bible and said, do you know what the, word, the letters TP mean by all these verses? You know what she said? Tested and proven. Through the course of her life, she tested every promise that God gave and put tested and proven next to the verses of her Bible. And every time she opened that Bible, it reminded her of God's faithfulness. We need to taste and see that the Lord is good. You know, We need to take what he has promised and apply it into our lives. Only then will we see that God is always faithful. He can never lie. And anything he says to us and promises to us, he will perform if we're faithful to what he has told us to do. Amen? So next week we will continue in chapter 4, verse 8. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness and grace. We thank you, Lord, for your word. It truly is a lamp unto our feet, a light to our path. And Lord, give us more grace to hunger for your word more than ever before. That as we read it, you will open our understanding by your spirit to the things you have placed here, that, Lord, we will receive the promises and apply them into our lives by faith. That, Lord, your word would become living and powerful in our lives. So, Lord, thank you. We ask you to continue to bless these studies in James for your glory. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.